Hi everyone, welcome to Astavision. My name is Asta Philpot, and on today's episode, I am so pleased to welcome Samantha Renk. She is absolutely stunning. She's done so much in her life already, and you might recognize her from the television. Um, so, welcome Samantha to Astavision. Oh. Thank you so much for having me, and I love the fact that we're both Northerners, and you'll you'll probably notice, well, you might not notice, because we've never really spoken before, but I'm already getting broader. We've just been having, like, a, a quick, like, chat before we went we went live, so to speak, and I've already, because I'm, I'm in London at the moment, that's where I live, but I'm from Lancashire, and already, after, like, five minutes of all speaking together, I've got proper Northern! <laughs> like, really, really Northern! <laughs> I know. I love it. I, know, yeah. I love it. I, I feel my. Yeah, I feel I myself slipping into Northern now. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, Sam, tell me, for uh, as ridiculous as it sounds, anyone who hasn't seen you or doesn't uh, isn't aware of you, just take me, take me back to young Sam and how you were when you were born and how you were born. Oh with your disability. Yeah, absolutely. So don't hold this against me, but I was born in Germany. I'm half German. My mum is German and my dad um, it came from the UK. And I think like most young parents, you know, and like kind of being in the 80s, um, they had one non-disabled child, my sister, Stephanie, and, you know, kind of had a very 2.4, you know, kind of lifestyle I suppose my mum was a nurse my dad was in the army and then they welcomed me into the world and I guess you know ultrasounds were not you know as they are now and um they were anticipating a quote-unquote normal birth and then I popped out and I was like ta-da um I'm gonna give you a headache but it's gonna be a fun ride um and I was born with osteogenesis imperfecta more commonly known as brittle bone condition which is a bit of a weird one because it's actually a collagen deficiency so we all uh we all have collagen in our body i think there's like five or six different types of collagen uh you know it's not just the stuff you put pump in your lips like we are basically made up of collagen but type one is the is the big one so you find that in your hair in your skin in your arteries in your bones and i guess why they refer to it often as brittle bone condition i mean they say disease but um i don't really like that term i always say you can probably catch a you could probably catch herpes from me but you can't catch <laughs> occasionally genital warts but i mean you know <laughs> these are the these are the things you might catch from me um but, but and i wonder why i'm single um but you won't catch brittle bones um so yeah, so I was a complete shock to everyone. I was born with brittle bones. Oh yeah, going back to my original, I, I talk a lot and then I lose my track, so you probably have to rein me in a little bit. <laughs> um, worry, this is me fine. without alcohol, so can you imagine what I'm like when I'm <laughs> when I'm drunk? Honest to God. Um, so anyway, so yeah, it's called brittle bones, and I guess it's because, you know, not having that type 1 collagen means that we fracture really, really easily. We've got very, got very, very bendy limbs, you know, um, crazy dexterity issues. There's all different um, severities and variations of brittle bones. I actually have type 3, so I'm a completely different mutation. And I actually quite like the the word mutation because it has that super super human like you know like villain thing i quite like i like quite like being like you know poison ivy or someone like that but um but yeah i came as a bit of a shock and i guess very similar to anyone who's listening who was born with a uh disability or impairment if you will um uh you know the narrative was very very negative it was you know i i think i wrote in my book you know everyone had their negative nancy um you know kind of tablets that day and like i have you know i have just written a memoir strategically positioned behind me um and i had to speak to my mum about my birth now my mum is like a quintessentially german person like you know her emotions are very guarded and we don't i mean even, even though she's my best mate like you know we don't really I don't know, we don't often ha have these heart-to-hearts, um, and, I, I, and I'm very, you know, I'm very conscious of 
you know, that being a time that was really traumatic for her as well. And she kind of said to me, and it was really striking, and I'm sure many people can relate, like, she said, she said, you know, when you were born, you know, it was more like a bereavement rather than a celebration. She said, you know, not only were the doctors incredibly pessimistic, they actually removed me from my mum straight away and took me to a completely different hospital. My mum wasn't, and she, they basically said, you know, like, it doesn't look good, pray, pray for her. Um, but, you know, subsequently, when I um, didn't die within the first few hours and, you know, kind of, I was a bit of a fight. I was born with multiple um, fractures. You know, I had fractures in utero. So I was quite a sick baby. Um, but she said, like, no one would come and visit her or hardly anyone really would visit her. And, you know, like, the whole conversation, the language around my birth was really, really negative. You know, I'm sorry... You know, um, you know, it's so sad. And it's really funny because obviously when I was promoting the book and I was writing about this, because it, you know, it really hit me, something that I never even thought of and never really, you know, had time to, you know, be empathic and put my, put my place in my mum's shoes. Because I think we have this tendency, you know, to think of parents as just parents and not human beings, you know what I mean? So it was, it was a weird, it was a weird thing to hear her say this. So I posted about it on social media and I remember this lady who I connected with her little boy in America, he's got type three, um, brittle bones. Oh, type three is, it, it, because it is a different genetic mutation. It means that no one in our family, there's no lineage of what we know. So we're a different, we're like a fluke. You know, well, other other than that, it is it is a hereditary condition. Um, told you, I lose my train of thought. I'll get back to everything. But anyway, she said to me, she went, she went isn't that funny that your mum said that? Because thirty odd years later, she went when when I've forgotten the little boy's name. He's proper cute though. Um, when he was born, one of her neighbours actually wrote her a brief a bereavement card. Yeah. So that was that. So, so I was born in Germany, but, you know, I was a fighter and my parents decided, you know, that they would have more help and assistance if we came back to the UK. So we came back to the UK um, and I grew up, I know, I'm always a little bit pissed off at my dad for this. Am I allowed to swear? I just did. Um, of course, you can yeah. bleep that out, can't you? Um, I always feel a bit annoyed because um, we've got family members in Weymouth, like Bournemouth, which is beautiful, like in the south south coast um and then we had relatives in chorley um and guess where my parents <laughs> guess where my parents decided sunny sunny bournemouth sunny bournemouth or proper shithole northwest no i mean i love coming from the northwest but you know what i mean it's kind of not not yeah. not the best comparison and i say shithole with jess i am actually moving back to leyland this year so I can't think it's that. I can't think it's that much of a shithole. Um, but yeah, I and I guess, I guess you know, I've always had that awareness of being different. But a lot of the messaging that I write in the book, you know, is I, I think I've always, you know, I've, I've obviously negated a lot of the labels that are associated with disability, um, consciously or, or unconsciously. But I always had this, like, kind of self, like, you know, innate sense of self-worth. And it always sounds a bit cringy saying that out loud because it makes you sound a bit egotistical and a bit, you know, narcissistic. And I don't mean it to, but I guess I, I was always one of those kids who, very outspoken, you know, my sister was equally quite, you know, out there and, and so I learned from her as well. But, you know, I just, for me, all I remember growing up, until I hit high school and then... Again, we can all relate to that high school as like a game changer and it's like, yeah. what is this hell that we are living in? But up until that point, I didn't get, I didn't get people's negative attitudes towards me or any pit, like pity. I didn't, I got it, but I didn't get it psychologically. I just looked at people and I was like, why, why are you, why are you being condescending? Even like a young age, I had this kind of like, I'm 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 unique and I like that about me. But like I loved being different. I loved I, you know, I love the attention. I love the fact that if I went to a car boot, people would give me free stuff. Yes, it was t you know, <laughs> it was tinged in pity or it was tinged in. But I you know, I love that. I love the fact that I had like 
I suppose, this unique selling point that no one else really had and I and I and I guess that's why I've, you know, been as successful as I as I am. And don't get me wrong, it's not always been plain sailing and I've had moments of self doubt, I've had moments of you know, imposter syndrome, I've had moments of loathing, I've had moments of depression and, you know, I battle with anxiety. So I'm not saying, you know, look at me, I've got it all figured out. But I think what has been interesting is reflectively looking back, I've only ever felt or I've only ever questioned my worth when other people have made me question it, you know, and chipped away at that. And I guess for me and the, the driving force behind all the advocacy that I do now and, you know, kind of the charity work that I do and, and even in my writing and even, well, you know, anything that I can do to help, you know, create a better understanding of disabled people, neurodivergent individuals, you know, um, or to, to be a role model is to kind of, you know, spread that message of, you know, you're not the problem. It's other people's ignorance, insecurities, you know, stupidness, you know, all, all these things. And yes, it can be dif difficult to deflect a lot of that and sound those voices out. But, you know, if I can impact anyone in, in a positive way and get them to change their thought process, um, I, you know, that's what I really, really want to do. I, um, I, I love fashion. I've always loved fashion. And my sister, you know, she was quite opposite to me in the sense that she was quite a sporty person. So, you know, very, very much like trainers, trackies. And I was like, oh, animal print and flowers and, you know, like really going for it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I remember, I remember like during um, college and college is a difficult time again for people, you know, you, you, you know, hormones are going everywhere and, you know, I felt really rejected by the opposite sex and, you know, all my girlfriends were really pretty and I was a bit like, hang on a minute, you know, I'm in college now, I'm able to express myself through my fashion and makeup and hair and, you know, I had style, I had, I had that um, style, I suppose, that just came naturally, you know, yeah. um, and, and I still wasn't really getting the attention that I wanted. And I remember we went, I went out with my sister and my mom and I felt, re I think I was, I think I was depressed at this point, if we want to give it a label. Um, I was not in a good place, probably about 17. And we went to, we actually went to Ikea. Who doesn't love Ikea? Um, but at that time, I didn't, you know, no meatballs were gonna, were gonna uh, change my, change my frown, turn it upside down. Um, and I remember being there, I remember everyone staring at me. And you, you know, you'll, you'll probably relate to this, having a physical disability, you know, unless we wear a burqa or a bin bag, we're going to get stared at, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, there's no real way of, like, covering up, you yeah. know, completely. It's, yeah. it's, you know, and, and although we're wheelchair users, you know, we've got limb difference, we, we look different, we're petite stature and so forth. And, and I remember being in Ikea and everyone was glaring at me and I just bursted out into tears in the car park and I just I was just like you know what what can I do what can I do to you know to change myself to be like to be you know I had that kind of like what you know I'm doing everything I'm wearing makeup I'm doing this I've you know I've got my belly button pierced I felt like I was trying to you know code switch I suppose that's what it is you know trying to fit in with the peers and I was like and I and it was that kind of horrible revelation that there's not going to, you know, there's nothing that I can do, you know, to make people stop staring at me or be ignorant or so on and so forth. And my sister knelt down next to me and um, she said, have you ever thought that maybe people are staring at you because, you know, your outfits and the way you put yourself together is, is, is impeccable and it is a skill yeah. and it's a skill not everybody has. And and I, and I remember being a bit like, because at, at that time I wasn't very close to my sister. So like taking any advice from her was a bit like pulling teeth, you know. Um, but, I, you know, that stuck with me. It stuck with me a, a lot. And I, whenever I share this story, particularly with all the disabled people, you know, they, they actually go, oh, do you know what, actually? Yeah, because when I was on the train the other day, someone was looking and then when they left, they were like, where did you get your trainers from? Do you know what I mean? So I think it's about changing our attitude to a situation. Yeah. You know, it's about changing how we view the world. 
Sorry, I really went on and on and on then, didn't I? No, it's amazing. No, I, I, I really, um, we, we have really similar entrances into the world because I was born in Miami and, um, I was born, yeah, I was born in Miami and I, I was born in a, a an emergency C-section and my, I was like you taken away from my mum straight away because they, I was really like the doctors had never ever seen anything like this before, and um, I was I was on life support, and they they told my mom and dad that I had one week to live. So it's it and and you know it's just incredible hearing hearing how you grew up. Do you do you remember anything about Germany or how long were you there for? No, I was only there. Well. No, I was only like three months old when I moved to the UK, but I used to go back to Germany. Really, It's really funny, isn't it? Because um, I do remember a lot of fond memories of Germany. I used to go back to see my grandma. But at the time, um, at my so my sister was about four or five, so she was completely assimilated into German life. You know, she was bilingual. She went to kindergarten. You know, my mum was like back working and things like that. So my Oma, so my grandma, was my sister's primary caregiver, I suppose, while my mum was at work, you know. Um, in Germany, particularly in rural areas, like family, you know, you don't move away. Like, no, that's just not the done thing. What you do is you build onto the house and you build and you build and you build and you build until you literally have run out of room. And then, you know, so you can have three, four generations living in one freaking big house. So, um so that was not really un, unnatural or, or any different. But then when we decided to move to the UK, and I don't, to be quite honest with you, I don't know the full story. My dad died when I was nine, suddenly of a brain hemorrhage. He was only 38. So a real ba you know, baby. And again, it's that whole thing of, you know, trauma within family. You know, you don't want to pry too much. And, and maybe I should start asking my mum more questions about that kind of t time period. But... You know it's difficult so and, and again you know it's difficult when it can still be quite raw anyway i think one of the reasons why we moved over was because my dad had a lot of um siblings in the uk um with children of similar ages and also i think they'd heard of the brittlebone society so they heard of a society that would help um you know to understand brittle bones and that yeah. was you know it, of its of its kind, I don't think anywhere, you know, in the whole world had it had that support network. So I think those were the the real reasons. But isn't it funny that my grandma, God rest her soul, uh, my grandma stopped talking to the whole family for five years. So because you know, in her eyes, you know, her children, her grandchildren were taken, taken away. And it's really funny because, like, you know, now speaking wow. to my sister and you know unpacking. I don't know about you, like you know, that internalised ableism and, be, and being felt like you're a burden, that has manifested so much in my life. So, you know, my dad really, my dad did struggle with having a disabled child. I'm not going to lie. He was a typical army man. You know, my dad had a very, you know, tough upbringing. He, he was dyslexic. He quit school when he was 14. His parents were alcoholics. It was a very broken family. You know, he escaped when he was 14. Um, he became a jockey. He loved animals. That's where I get my passion for animals. You know, he connected with animals on a deeper level. Yeah, he was a jockey. And, you know, but so so I think, you know, for him, he felt like a he felt responsible for my condition. And he did that. That did weigh heavy on him. He was not a he was not a hands on dad. You know, he like he was like, that's the that's the mum's role you know um i remember once my mum was really yeah. unwell and um he had to take over childcare. and i remember he had to carry me up the stairs and i just remember him carrying me but he was like this he was shaking you know um but i've had relatives tell me i've had relatives tell me like you know your dad died because of you because he couldn't cope with I mean, no, that wasn't why. My dad had high blood pressure and he died of a brain hemorrhage. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, he was a heavy yeah. drinker and he was a heavy smoker. That might have also contributed yeah. to, um, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, yeah. but again, you know, that, you know, that, that whole internal, like, feeling like you're a burden. You know, like my, 
you know, my sister has had issues with me and we spoke very open and honest about it, you know, we're very close now, we're, we're, we're really good friends. Um, but you know, that whole resentment of, in my sister's eyes, she's that six year old child who got dragged away from her grandma, got, you know, dragged away from her friends and where she knew and to a different country. And why? Because of me, you know, or, you know, that's how, that's how it, she saw it. So it's really, really interesting. Like I'm only learning more and more about the relationships I have now. Um, and, and the, the issues I've maybe had or the complexities that I've had with certain people um, and, and tracing that back to, you know, how me coming into the world and society viewing me impacted on all the relationships I've had to this day. How does, I know you talk about burden and it, I think, I think it comes in, um, I don't know how to explain it, but I think every person with a disability almost comes automatically, doesn't it, into into their lives one way or another. The the, the burden thing, but how 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 do you deal with society's perception of disability now? It's a, it's a, a weird one because I, if I'm completely honest, one of the appeal or something that appealed to me being in the public eye, you know, obviously to make money, to be independent. Um, I'm a performer, so I enjoyed things like this, being able to talk and, you know, be on stage or, or, or that capacity, you know, I, I, so that was it. But also, I genuinely thought that being in the public eye, you know, having that, I don't want to use the word celebrity because it's a bit wanky, that phrase, but you know what I mean, like being, being someone that people recognise, um, it was an appeal to me because I actually thought, I actually thought that I would attract more partners, <laughs> ultimately. I also thought that people would respect me a bit more. I also thought that I'd probably be less infantilised. And there's an element to it. There's an element like people will come up to me and instead of staring at me initially because I'm in a wheelchair, they'll be like, oh my God, you're from that, you know? Um, but it's a really, it's a really funny one. What I've noticed is, and it irritates the heck out of me. I went to Abba, I went to Abba Voyage. And it, I'd love to hear your, um, your take on this because some disabled people that I've spoken to about this don't think it's a big deal, but for me it's a really big deal. Um, I went to Abba Voyage, Voyage um, the other day, and so it was like a concert, and um, there was loads of people there, and about four people came up to me, to go, oh my God, you know, it's you. And only one out of the four people knew who I was. Everybody else thought I was Liz Carr, um, they thought I was, I'm really bad with names, she's an actress that she used to be in, um, really? Emmerdale. Really? Yeah. Like, they didn't, they, so they all, they, they all just thought, oh, wheelchair user, oh, that's, that's you. And I also have someone who's got brittle bones like me, she's an influencer, um, we've both got blonde hair, and we're both petite, that's literally about it, and we constantly get like you know confused with one another so i think it's a bit of a weird one like you know fame or notoriety or that kind of presence it is a great platform and you get your foot in the door but it's a weird one because you then realize that most of the world still doesn't see you as an important individual they just see you as a wheelchair user they just see you as a disabled yeah. person yeah, the the way I saw it was that um, I, I don't know when someone. In fact, it happened last night. Me and my partner were out, and the waitress says to me, "Did I did I see you on TV last last week?" And I was just like, "Yeah, yeah," but it almost makes you feel validated, doesn't it? And I think, as far as the staring thing goes, I I got my arms covered in tattoos, and now it's changed. It's reversed my thinking in that, oh, people are looking at my tattoos and not my arms. No, absolutely. And look, at the end of the day, 
five out of six people might still be asses and might be ignorant and might just be, you know, awful people. And then, but you know, one of them might be a genuine person who's like, oh my God, I love your ink. You know, so exactly, I, I'll take that for exactly. the win, you know? How, so moving forward, you've, you, you've, you've done quite a lot, haven't you, you know? I mean, na namely as well, the, the, the Malteser advert and, you know, you've been on, you've been on ITV News and Loose Women and how, how, how did you get into that as a person with a disability? Gosh, I, I, I think it, unfortunately, it was a bit of a cliche. Um, I loved acting and things when I was at school. So I've always had that kind of penchant for being in front of the camera or you know, doing that creative work. Um, but when I moved to London in 2012, so I qualified as a language teacher, worked in a school, predominantly with children with education, additional educational needs. Um, and then I wanted to continue in that school in one of their, um, I, I trained as an MFL teacher, modern foreign language teacher. And I wanted to stay at the school that I'd been with. I was with them for my postgrad, um, and I was like, "Yeah, you know, there's going to be a job opening." And then that fell through last minute. The last at the last minute, I was like, "Wow, I don't know what to do." And then the opportunity came. I was a, I was a trustee for the Britain Bone Society at the time, and a, and a you know an opportunity came to move to London. So. I, you know, I did, and I, it was actually because I really love being a trustee. I love doing essentially what I'm doing now, like the advocacy side of things. And I, you know, you know, being a trustee not only got me in contact with other disabled people, which is really empowering. Something that I was was quite alien to me growing up. I was quite ostracised from that. Um, but also, you know, I got like free media training. You know, like to be a spokesperson of charity organisations. So I do, you know, like little radio gigs and, and things like that on behalf of the charity. And I was like, oh, I'm actually quite good at this. You know, I've actually got a bit of a flair for this. So when I moved to London, um, I didn't come down to London to be an actress or presenter or anything. I actually came down to look for a full time charity position. You know, I wanted to work in the charity sector, but I wanted to be paid. You know, I wanted to earn a living from it. And I re I got a volunteer position at Action for Children. So I worked as a volunteer for them for a, about six months, I think. Um, and I was applying for jobs, but then the harsh reality of, like, how discriminatory, you know, the world is. And I know that sounds really ironic because yeah. I was 26 at the time when I moved to London. But I never really felt discrimination. I'd been still in quite a bubble like a bubble of education, higher education, a bubble of being in a small town where everyone knew me, a bubble of, you know, my mum still being my chauffeur, you know, like, so I didn't really, I wasn't in the, in the big bad world, even though I was 26. So when I moved to London, it was a, it was a real, like, oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> God, I'm on my own, you know, on my own now. Um, and then I went, you know, I had one friend who was from Lancashire as well, he was in London and he was one of the reasons that, you know, encouraged me to move to London. Um, and we, it was pure, purely by chance. We were supposed to go to a house party and his friends, um, wonderful gay couple who are like my best friends now, um, they were having a house party and my friend Nathan was like, I'm coming with my friend Sam, she's in a wheelchair. Um, and they were like, oh my God, we're on the fifth floor and just this morning the lift broke. And um, so me, me and Nathan were like, do you know what, we'll play it by ear. We'll just kind of like, we'll go out, go go around King's Cross, have a few drinks, you know, see what happens. And then about nine o'clock at night, I think we're all going to kind of like just give it, knock it on the head. Um, Eduardo like texts going, hiya, the lift's working. And I remember vividly where Nathan was, he was sat on a wall near Euston Station having a cigarette and I was in front of him in my chair and it's that sliding door moments isn't it and he went should we go then and I think because I I was like new in London and stuff I was like yeah let's go like let's go you know um not not like I would say now because I'm in bed by nine o'clock most nights um but we went and 
I was I was actually the only girl. I was the only girl at the party. They were all gay men, and um, not that I'm grumbling because they're all pretty fit. Um, but I, you know, they were all. Most of them worked in the entertainment industry. Max is a producer and TV producer, um, and I I think Max had never met anyone like me, in the sense of he had a, you know, like when people have like a creepy fascination towards disability they're the ones yeah. to avoid but max had like yeah. a max had like a beautiful fascination towards me you know what i mean like a like i welcomed his curiosity in a really nice way and we stayed in touch and i he said you know have you ever acted i said yes and um i said really liked it and he went i would love to call you for an in, uh, audition so i went for an audition and we came up with a concept for a small indie film I thought, look, I'm, you know, I'm not really getting anywhere work-wise, so I might as well do it. And then, you know, it kind of everything spiralled from that. Um, it turned into a feature film. It won some awards at the LA Diversity Film Festival. And then I got a, you know, I got an agent from that. And I think, you know, that really kind of put me on the map. And it's funny, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that I've lost my passion for acting. It's something that, you know... I think it's a great thing if you can get it, but I feel like, oddly, when I was, uh, when I was like on the, when I broke into the entertainment industry and I was going to Channel 4 and I was pitching, we, uh, me and Max felt we were so forward thinking and we felt like we had something real, which we did, but in, in our minds we were like, yeah, the industry's ready for us, but they weren't. I think we were just a little bit too early and obviously like Ruth Medley who was a mutual friend of ours um you know like I remember we kept going up for the same auditions constantly because we're both wheelchair users we're both northerners you know we kind of ticked the same boxes and you know obviously it's worked really well for her but I still think you know the industry is still really really far behind when you're talking about having someone in a sustainable career you know yes you can get people who do one or two amazing projects and i'm not knocking that i'm not disputing that but ultimately you know being an actress is a career you know and having a disability costs a lot of money you know um so you need to have that yeah. sustainability and although yeah. although i i would never say no to acting what i was finding was um i lost my confidence because i would you know go go months and months and months without even having an audition and even when i had to go for an audition you know the buildings were not accessible and i didn't have a pa at the time i had no support and it was just it just got to a point where i was like i do love this but i i am worth more worth than it? to yeah, wait around yeah to wait around mm. for a an industry to to know my worth and I do think everything happens for a reason. You know, the acting that I did, like the Maltesers, that opened many, many doors for me. And it was great. And people, you know, still now, like, it was like, what, 2016? Like, that's crazy, you know. But the things that I'm doing now, so my consultancy, you know, my guest speaking, my inspirational talks, my keynote presentations, you know, my, my training that I do, um, my presenting that I do, because I still do quite a lot of presenting you know kind of spots but it's a nice little combination now like for me and my health has deteriorated quite a lot in the past few years you know so I think like I think like to think of me going back into acting full-time and living out of a suitcase and being in a hotel is just not my cup of tea anymore and it's really funny because I think when I say to people no it's just not what I want to just not what I want to do. It just, I'm a true believer. If it doesn't bring you joy anymore, then just let let it go. You know. I remember when Amen. I said to people, I, I love that. Yeah, I love that. You know, just let it go. But it, people are more just like. So I'm leaving London this year. I'm going to be moving back to Lancashire. I'm taking over the family bungalow. So my mum remarried. We were just renting out our family bungalow. I live when I was a teacher. I lived there. How I, how funny is this? So in my like early twenties, I lived in a because my, da my dad died so young, um, the more, like health insurance obviously paid off for the mortgage, which is great coming from a working class background. So we bought out, we bought a bungalow outright and we got some adaptations done to it. 
Um, and then when I was a teacher, I lived there on my own for about two years. Detached bungalow, four bedroom bungalow, backed onto a park, right? Literally park. <laughs> I freaking right. hated it. I hated every minute of it. I hated the birds waking me up in the morning. I hated the fact that I had to say hello to my neighbours. I hated the fact that it was green and quiet. Now, <laughs> now, <laughs> living in London, I've literally got builders next door drilling. And probably, you can probably hear it. Um, and people being drunk on the streets, you know, seven days a week. And I hate it. I hate it now. You know, I mean, hate's a strong word. But you know what I mean? I'm, I'm definitely ready Give me for the green back. Give me the green back. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so I'm going to take, you know, the tenants moved out. Um, so my mum and I've come to an agreement that I will move back into that property and you know kind of I love my interior design I love my like my fashion so I want to see how I can maybe you know do interior as a you know even if it's online social media kind of um I, I think I've opened no I know I've opened a I don't want anyone to well you can go and join it there's not much on there now but it's um play on words on Instagram wheelie as in wheelie good Renault. So if you follow that, really good Renault. Um, I like I said because the renovation's only just about happening. There's not that much on there yet, but I'm hoping to put you know my because I've been doing a lot of research about you know accessible building on a budget. Not I'm not working with a big budget, and yeah. I think that's really important to be completely honest with people when you're doing these things because a lot of the people that I follow who do um like renovation stuff and how for like you know wheelchair access or whatever access. They just seem to be playing with a freaking... I don't know what they're doing. I don't know whether they're, like, you know, lottery winners or whatever, but they seem to be, like, like minted. Like, seriously, they seem to be minted. And I'm like, okay, that look, that's really great, but that's, that's not going to happen. So I'm hoping to do, you know, like, show tips and tricks of, of... Yeah, but do you know what I mean? Like, even just, like, shower chairs. I mean, for goodness sake, there was this one company, yeah. a shower chair was over nearly £2,000. I'm like, you're freaking that. Yeah. So yeah, I I'm gonna do lots more content on there of me just you know trying to find the best deal and the cheapest deal for an accessible, inclusive um, yeah renovation. And I love it anyway. I love doing it. I've just ordered some like um, what's it called wallpaper samples. So I got totally excited this morning. I was like, whoa, whoa wallpaper, wallpaper. So yeah. <laughs> when and you did don't you, know. Uh, yeah, what that's what you're onto. At what point did you live, start to live independently and move move away from your, your mum's care? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Again, I write about it in the book. So I had quite a toxic relationship with my mum. My mum was my best friend, but um, when my dad died, um, she was left in a foreign country um, with no job. My dad was quite a controlling person, so she gave up her career. Um, and we actually um, we actually had our house up for sale months before he died. My mum actually had just redone her nursing qualifications and we were moving to America. Um, we wanted to move wow. to America for a few years and then head on to New Zealand where we've got family. So as you can imagine, my life could have looked incredibly different. Um, my dad, however, because of his character, you know, he didn't want me to go to high school. He wanted me to home be homeschooled. So, you know, when my dad died, it, it didn't just leave us without, you know, a, a parent and a, and a home, you know, kind of that, that, that homemaker. You know, everything really, really changed. And me and my mum became very close. But, you know, mental health played a part. And me being a people pleaser and me feeling that internalised ableism in the sense of, you know, I, I was very aware in my in my own mind, I was very aware that, okay, my mum had essentially given up her life to be my caregiver, you know, not just mother, but caregiver full time. And I was like, if I start to be more independent, I'm sorry, if I start to be more independent, or if I, you know, start having my own life, um, what what does that mean for her so i very much used education higher education as a crutch 
because in my mind I was like, well, if I'm at uni or if I'm doing a postgrad, I don't really need to learn how to be independent. I don't need to learn how to cook my own meals. Like, because I'm at university, I I can't do, you can't expect me to do all everything. You know, I'm studious. So I kind of, I kind of latched onto that. And then, you know, things got not in a good place with me and my mum. Um, obviously, I'm very mindful of, of, of giving too much detail, but it was, it was hard work. And at the time, at that time, she had, she was in a relationship that was a bit up and down and they broke up and me and my mum moved back into the bungalow. And I remember my sister saying to me, she went, if they don't get back together, oh, that was it. The reason why they broke up, apparently, in, you know, in my stepdad's eyes, was, um, you know, I was, I was like the, I was, I, I would never be independent. So it was a drain on their relationship. So again, again, being, wow. you know, labeled wow. with, and the irony is, they, they did get back together. So my sister said to me, you know, if, if they don't get back together, you will start to resent your, your mum. You'll start to resent your mum. I was hiding things like, you know, having sex and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like I was having to be so covert. Mm. I was an yeah. adult, but I was being covert yeah. about everything. Um, and I, had a re I just sat down with my mum and I said, look, I said, you need to have your life and I need to have my life. I said, what's going to happen is you go back and try and patch things up with your partner. I will stay on my own in the bungalow and I will learn to be independent. And she went back to her partner. And the irony is, you know, like they aren't married now, but their relationship didn't necessarily change all that much when I moved out of the, when I took myself out of the equation, which just goes to show, you know. Um, and, 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 I, and I lived yeah. there when I was teaching as well. Yeah. I lived there for less than two years and then I moved to London. So for me, you know, like literally, you know, what, in the space of two, two and a half years, I think maximum, I'm not very good at math. Um, I, I went from literally not knowing how to make myself a cup of tea, well, not not knowing, but just never making myself a cup of tea, to living on my own in London, you know? So it happened that fast wow. and it was the best decision, wow. best decision for myself, ultimately, but also best decision for mine and my mum's relationship. My mum went back to nursing, you know, she, her relationship with a partner did get better over time, I think because, you know, that independence that she regains. Um, and yeah, and, and, and what's nice is, you know, I was able to share London with my mum, like it was nice for her to come and visit me in London. And now I'm moving back home, I'm not gonna lie, like I'm, because I'm having therapy at the moment, Therapy is the best decision I've ever, ever, ever invested it in. Um, but, you know, like moving back to Lancashire, um, knowing that my mum will be much closer to me. You know, she lives about 20 minutes away, um, which is nice. But then equally, those out there, those feelings of, oh, do I, will I, will I go back into that codependent relationship? Um, so, yeah, so it's interesting. But I, I think... I think now I actually have a completely different relationship with my mum and that is mother and daughter rather than this really toxic codependency. What what brought you to the book? You tell everyone about your book. Shameless plug. Oh, you can't see it because it's bright. You are the there best thing is. since sliced bread. So I, I've always wanted to write a book because um, I am a storyteller. Um, but I think for a lot of the things that we've spoken about today... Like, you know, um, it's really hard to share your story when other people and their feelings and their lives and their mistakes and their struggles are so entwined with your, with your own, you know? It's really, really difficult to think, how am I going to be authentic? How am I going to, you know, write a story, write my life journey without completely pissing everyone off? You know what I mean? Without, like, upsetting everyone, without, you know, playing the victim card or, you know, having to maybe have difficult conversations with people or, you know, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to air everyone's laundry out, you know, and vice versa. So I think that's why I hesitated. But then just before the pandemic, um, at the beginning of the year, so probably 
so the, the, the year before, yeah, the year before the pandemic, I got an email and I think career-wise everything was like slowly falling into place and um, and I got an email saying Fern Cotton, who is a really well-known TV presenter, um, Fern wants you to be part of her festival, she has a holistic festival called Happy Place, she has a brand called Happy Place and and it was one of those moments i was like oh my goodness me and at the same time as well ironically boy george who um had met me apparently i don't remember meeting him that's probably in my well it was in my clubbing days but he i think he was stalking me because he used to dj at a lot of the clubs that i go to and we've got a few mutual friends like uh, dj fat tony and so forth and um and he was like asking me he wanted to collaborate with me for a while so it was like a bit of a crazy time and then obviously, wow. the pandemic, it wasn't the year before, it was a few months before, that's right. Then obviously the pandemic kind of happened and Happy Place Festival wasn't going to happen, everything went online and then I was supposed to be in the studio with Boy George and then that was couldn't happen and Boy George's team were just like, why don't you just record on your phone? And it was it it was like such a roller coaster because it had gone from wow I can't believe these things are happening to me to like screw you pandemic you know and I went I actually went back to um, these builders are doing my head in I'm really sorry if you can hear that so loudly um, don't worry don't I went worry back, it's fine. I went <laughs> so annoying um, I went back to live with my mum and stepdad in Lancashire during the pandemic because. Um, I was really scared, because obviously my mum was a nurse, but I was really scared of if anything happened to me at home, you know, what, you know, I was on my own and then we're in a pandemic. So I went back home um, and I did the Happy Place virtual festival, which was lovely, but I, so, I felt a little bit like deflated because it wasn't how I envisioned. And then equally with like the Boy George music video, he, he kept saying to me, just like record it on your, he doesn't speak like that, by the way. He was like, just record it on your phone. And I was like, that's a bit naff. Um, so I I ended up for the music video. I was like, right, if he wants a music video, I've got to bloody do a music video. So I created all these alter egos, all these characters, and I really went for it. And the, video, the, the music wow. video is called You Are The Best Thing Since Sliced Bread. It's called that. And then at the same time, I'd, I'd been keeping in contact with Fern. And we'd become really good friends over WhatsApp. And she said to me, um look through my company every year i'm hoping to release a handful of books um in conjunction with ebri so ebri is part of penguin and she went would you like to be one of yeah. the first people that i get to publish and of course you know you don't say no to fern cotton you just kind of like say yeah and then think shit what am i going to do now so yeah so the second half of the Afterwards, pandemic yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. The second half of the... Sorry, I've got really dry lips. The second half of the pandemic, I wrote the book. And I called it, You Are the Best Thing Since Sliced Bread, because that is definitely the message of the book. But also, you know, I liked the link with... Excuse me, with the music video, because at the time in my life, and everyone can relate to this, and particularly when you have a disability, you never know what's around the corner. Your health might give up. You know, you might, you know, go go to a venue and the lift is broken or, you know, everything changes. And it's it's the way you respond to a situation. And during the pandemic, I definitely threw my toys out of the pram. I definitely was miserable and I was like, oh, I don't want to do the, I don't want to, you know, do Happy Place Virtual. I don't want to just record a music video on my phone. You know what I mean? But these are still amazing opportunities. And as soon as I changed my thought process and really gave it my all you know things worked out better than originally you know with a music video boy george was like the quality is so good i had to up my game you know and we got a lot of tv coverage for it and it was something you know essentially i co-produced and it was amazing i was proper chuffed you know and i eventually and and the relationship that i formed with fern has not only got me, you know, to write this, but also we're working on a whole host of different projects. And, you know, I got to be in person at last year's Happy Place Festival, you know? So I think nice. the message again, and what I said right at the beginning of, you know, speaking with you, 
you know, it's about changing how you look and, 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 and take on anything that, that happens to you, anything that comes your way. I really love your outlook. And I think, you know, I, I heard one into, I, I think I heard an interview with you on YouTube and you talked about the universe and I'm a great believer in, you know, if the universe sends you something, we always have a tendency to say no, don't we? But I think, I think it's important sometimes to start saying yes. What, uh, before we, before we, we go, what, what advice would you give to someone with a disability who, who really wants to get into the media industry like you have? I, I always say like, be your own muse. And that's the title of what in my book. And I think, you know, we can all have role models and we can all look at someone like myself or Ruth Medley or, or you and we can go, I want a piece of what they've got. And I think that's fine, but unfortunately, when you do that, when you turn to other people, when you're constantly chasing other people's dreams, you often fall short because the reality is that's not your aspiration, that's my aspiration. I have my journey, you have your journey, and that other person has their journeys, you know? Um, I've got what makes me happy, what my boundaries are, and what my abilities are. And that will look very different to someone else. So although role models are incredibly important, I think, first of all, you need to look in, inwards, internally, and be like, well, what actually does make me happy? You know, okay, so Samantha's on TV and she does this. But as I said earlier to you, the reality is I don't want to do acting anymore because on the, on the surface people are like, oh, acting's great. But in my eyes, acting means long hours, crap pay, you know, away from home, um, pain because your body hurts. Yeah, because you're not in your own bed, you're not getting the right support necessarily. So I think we need to take away that, that rose-tinted glaze or that Instagram, yeah. you know, kind of vision. Um, uh, and, 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 and be true to yourself and be, and be really honest about what you want and what your goals are. Um, and, and I think when you, when you strip back all of that and you have some honest conversations with you, that's when things start to happen for you. You're such a, it's so nice to connect with you. You're such a lovely human being. And I, I feel, I feel, I feel my day is enlightened now from meeting you. And I really appreciate your time. And thank you so much for being on AfterVision. I really appreciate it. Oh, oh no, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've, I've heard lots of lovely things about you. So it's nice that we finally got to hang out a little bit. Mm -hmm.